First John chapter 2, if you have your Bible, First John chapter 2 wants to continue working our way through this epistle in the New Testament written by the Apostle John. Last few years, there's an expression that's become somewhat popular, sort of a tongue-in-cheek kind of expression, maybe a shorthand expression. It's called life hack. I don't know if you've used this expression or if you've used or heard someone use it, but basically a life hack, it's an expression or a term that's been coined to describe a tidbit of life advice, to describe a skill that helps you get things done effectively and with a greater sense of efficiency. Life hacks are shortcuts or skills meant to increase a person's productivity or efficiency in their everyday life. There are certain skills that all of us could perhaps agree on that every person should have, basic skills that every person ought to know. You think about a basic sense of survival skills would kind of fall under this category as a life hack. Knowledge of how to start a fire without matches which I pray my 10-year-old son never discovers how to do, at least while he's 10. Or how to swim. It's important that a person learns how to swim. How to change a tire. I think everybody needs to know how to change a tire. Or what about this? How to drive a car with a manual transmission. A lost art. Let me tell you how I learned to drive a car with a manual transmission. When I was in high school, I worked for a tool and die shop, a machine shop, and I was able to um, make some deliveries. And my boss told me that he wanted me to make a delivery one day, and I had to take one of the company trucks. It was an old GMC white pickup truck. He said, we need you to run this gear part over to this other plant. And so I said, sure. I jumped in it. All of a sudden, I realized it had three pedals in the bottom instead of two. And I had seen my dad do this when I was a kid when he had a, a little pickup truck. So I, I just fired it up. I knew how to press the clutch, turn the ignition switch. And I also knew that if you were perhaps on an incline, you had to pop the clutch and give it gas at the same time in order to not stall it out on a hill. And so when I was taking off out of the plant, it was, I was pulling out onto a main highway, and there was a hill that I was stopped on. And so I popped the clutch, and I, I mean, I hit the gas pedal as hard as I could. And I sat there for at least three seconds and just burned the back tires. But I learned by fire how to drive a manual transmission. It's a life hack, something everybody needs to try to do or attempt to do. There are just some things in life that we ought to know how to do. There are some things in the Christian life that all of us need to know. Not so much a life hack, but life facts. And this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle John will tell us some things, really, that every Christian needs to know in his or her life. Again, think of these as spiritual life facts. Because without an understanding of these truths, believers will not make any progress in their lives spiritually. 
Now, while there may be shortcuts in terms of life hacks to do things more efficiently, you know that there's no such thing as a shortcut to spiritual growth. There's no such thing as a shortcut to spiritual maturity. And yet, at the same time, there are some fundamental truths or some things that need to be nailed down in our lives if we're to move forward in terms of our own spiritual growth. Because the Christian life, it's not static, it's one of movement. Where there is life, where there is health, there will also be growth. And according to what the Apostle John writes here in 1 John chapter 2, There are at least three fundamental things that every Christian ought to know and be confident in. And each one of these things is true in Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bible there, verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2, John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I want to speak from this subject this morning things that every Christian ought to know. Again, John mentions at least three of these in these verses, things that are fundamental that every Christian ought to know for the sake of spiritual growth in his or her life. Now, you know that up until this point in the letter, John has been presenting his readers with some basic tests of assurance, tests that we can apply to our lives to examine whether or not we're truly in the faith. Now, one of those tests is the obedience test. He's mentioned this earlier in chapter 2. Is there a pattern of obedience in my life as a believer? And he says back up in verse 3, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. If there's a consistency about our lives in terms of spiritual obedience to the word of God. And then in verses 7 through 11, John mentions the social test Do I demonstrate love for my brothers and my sisters? If there is love that has been experienced, I've experienced the love of God in Christ, then that love is going to be expressed to others through me, and this is evidence that I've come to know God, evidence that I've passed from death unto life, evidence that I've passed from darkness and into God's marvelous light. And so we know that the whole law can be summed up in loving God and loving other people. And so this is a major theme in 1 John. So verses 7 through 11 deal with this right kind of love. Now, in the verses that follow those verses that we've just read, John's still going to talk about love, but he's going to talk about the wrong kind of love, as in love for the world. Uh, not love for the people of the world, but love for this present world system. Uh, love of sin, love of, of this present fallen system under the domain and direction of the evil one. This is held in contrast uh, to the love of God. So in between these sections where John is dealing with the right kind of love and the wrong kind of love... Uh, he introduces somewhat of a parenthesis in verses 12, 13, and 14. 
Before he speaks to issues concerning loving the world or the things in the world, John is taking a few sentences to reassure his readers because he wants them to be confident in their faith. And and he's writing this letter not to increase their doubt, but really to strengthen their assurance. So you might could say that he interrupts his presentation of these tests to give these believers a personal word because he doesn't want them to be confused. He's writing this paragraph to give comfort to his readers that they were indeed the true children of God, unlike those false teachers and the Gnostic influencers that he's been warning them about who were trying to infiltrate the church, who were spreading lies and heresies and things that weren't true. So you'll notice that John is using some descriptive phrases here in this paragraph by which he refers to various groups within the church. What are these phrases? Well, notice the phrase little children or young men, fathers. And he's using these terms, each of these terms, twice. Now you might ask this question, is he grouping people in the church by their physical age? Well, at first glance, that may seem to be what he's doing, but in reality, that's not what John is doing at all, because he's dealing with his readers on the basis of spiritual maturity. And so by using this phrase, little children, there in verse 12, he's addressing everyone in the church. In fact, we've already seen him do this. He's used this phrase earlier in the chapter. And he uses this phrase, little children, at least six times throughout the epistle. He's not talking down to the readers. This is not a reprimand. Uh, He's not accusing them of behaving like children. He's not being insulting here. But this is a term of endearment. And it really is his way of speaking to the entire church. Now, again, keep in mind, John is upwards of 90 years of age. At this point, he's the last living apostle. And so truly everyone who was in the church was younger than John, and many of which were indeed his spiritual children. Perhaps he led them to faith. Uh, Perhaps he discipled them. We know that he had served as a pastor there at the church in Ephesus. And so he's addressing the whole church here in verse 12 by addressing them as little children. Now as he's addressing the church, you'll notice that he's using A few other phrases in these verses that follow included among his little children, and the the Greek word here is technion, included in this group, you've got fathers, young men, and then notice a second time he uses this word children. He says, I'm writing to you fathers, I'm writing to you young men, I write to you children. But the word that he uses for children in verse 13 in the original language, this is a different word than the one he's using in verse number 12. In fact, the word that he uses uh, for children in verse 13, it's the word we get the word pediatrics from, or pediatrician from. And it's a Greek word that refers to children who are still under parental instruction. Implicit within this word is this idea of immaturity. So he's addressing his readers as children, young men and fathers, by doing so, John is really calling attention to the fact that they're all at different levels of spiritual maturity. Now, sometimes I think that we forget that not everyone in the local church is at the same stage of spiritual maturity. 
You know, the local church is made up of people from a variety of backgrounds. You think about the variety of church backgrounds that are represented here in our own local fellowship. People who are new to our fellowship. People who are new in the faith. We're worshiping together with some who come to faith at a young age and have been a part of the church most, if not all, of their life. And so it's very true that within a local church, you've got people who are at different stages of spiritual development. People who are at different places in their life spiritually. And so, again, he's, he's, he's referring to some here who were truly spiritually mature saints. This is connected with this word fathers. And then you've got those who were the young men he talks about how they were known for their strength and known that the, the word of God was abide. Here you've got sort of a picture of those maybe in the prime of life who were in the faith, who were in the heat of battle. And the enemy is leveling his attack at them. And he's addressing children also, those who were new in the faith, those who were spiritual infants who needed to grow and develop and needed these young men and needed these fathers to come alongside them and bring them to a place of maturity. Dr. David Allen says that there are two kinds of spiritual infants mentioned throughout the New Testament. First, you've got Christians who are newly born again. And like newborn babies, new Christians need the same kind of things to grow. They need food. Think about what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, that newborn infants need to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word so that they may grow thereby. New believers need an atmosphere of love. They need a local faith family. David Allen says this, have you noticed how little children are often ruled by their emotions rather than their understanding? A sign of a little child is that oftentimes a child, when it doesn't get what it wants, it's very emotional. And, and, and children tend to follow their emotions. And, and you know something? Maturity at some point has to grow out of that, doesn't it? where our decision-making is not on the basis of how we feel at any given moment, but we use clear powers of discernment supplied by the Holy Spirit. This is what spiritual maturity recognizes. So there's another kind of spiritual infants mentioned in the New Testament, not just those who were new to the faith, but what about those that the Apostle Paul refers to uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as those who were people of the flesh, carnal believers, Christians who've been believers for a period of time, but somehow, for some reason, are stunted in their spiritual growth, either because of worldliness. The maternity, war, uh, the maternity wing is never intended to be a retirement home. And so the writer of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews chapter 5 when he addresses believers and says, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone else to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. And the writer of Hebrews calls believers to pursue maturity in their own life. He says, leaving the elementary principles, the discussion of elementary principles, let's press on to perfection or maturity. And so spiritual growth should very much be a goal in every believer's life. And so 
in order for any believer to take that spiritual growth seriously in their life, John says there's some things that you need to know. You've got to get this nailed down in your life as a believer if you are to experience real spiritual growth in your life. So what are these? Well, number one, notice John says in order for me to grow spiritually, I need to know with confidence that my sin has been forgiven. Because that's what he says as he's addressing the whole church in verse number 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And one of the main reasons that believers become stunted in their spiritual progress, it may stem from an inaccurate understanding of the depth of forgiveness. Oftentimes, those who are new to the faith... Those who are spiritual infants, they still struggle with this sense of whether or not their sins have truly been forgiven. Has the debt truly been paid in full? Or is there still something left for me to contribute? Do I have to do something? Surely, my past, you mean my past has been dealt with at the cross? And not just my past, but the sins that I still struggle with and even future sins. The debt has been paid in full by Jesus at the cross according to the gospel Yes. And the Apostle John says this has to get nailed down in your life as a believer if you are to make any spiritual headway. So notice he mentions the reality of forgiveness there in verse 12 when he tells these believers, your sins have been forgiven. And so this is a statement of fact. This is a marvelous certitude. This is something that is wonderfully true for every believer in Jesus Christ. You go back up earlier in the chapter and you'll see that John has already said that Jesus has made propitiation for our sins. In Jesus Christ, John says we have an advocate with the Father. And so there is joy in knowing that your sins have been forgiven. And, and it's only confidence in Jesus Christ that can remove the painful sting of guilt. And if a person is weighed down with just this perpetual sense of guilt, then listen to me. That will stunt your growth as a believer. You've got to commit your way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand that your sin debt has indeed been paid in full. And this is the key to joy and the key to confidence in your life. And the enemy wants to keep us weighed down with a sense of perpetual guilt. But in order for me as a believer to grow, John says, I need to know that my sin is forgiven and think about what a powerful bomb this is for your soul if you're a believer. Where John says, I want you to know something, my spiritual children, your sins are forgiven. And that word forgiven there uh, means to release or send away. It's the idea that the, the debt has been paid. My sins have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. And doesn't that bring you great joy to know that as a believer? Which means I don't have to live with guilt. I don't have to live with shame. I don't have to live anymore under a cloud of regret. It's all been buried in a sea of God's marvelous grace. My sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, the scripture says, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
And so this is my new spiritual reality in Jesus Christ. If I'm going to grow as a believer, I need to know with confidence that my sin has been forgiven. That's the reality. And then John mentions something about the basis for this forgiveness. Uh, He says, I'm writing to you little children. Your sins are forgiven. And here's the basis. He says, for his name's sake. That's the basis of my forgiveness. All that God does, God does for the sake of his name. Think about Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. And so my sin has not been forgiven for my name's sake. I'm not forgiven because of my own merit on the basis of my own performance or even because I deserve it. I'm not forgiven because I've become so worthy of forgiveness. No, as a Christian, I am forgiven solely on the basis of Christ's name's sake. And I've come to find grace and forgiveness and salvation in his name. And so maturity recognizes that sins are forgiven by Jesus for the sake of his name. And so here's something that's amazingly true. The man or the woman who understands this costly nature of forgiveness, you know what that does in your life? It will foster a sense of humility and a profound sense of gratitude that the debt has been paid. Jesus said something like this. I believe it's in Luke chapter 7. Uh, the one who has been forgiven much will love much. When you understand just what forgiveness means in your life, and when you really contemplate on the depth of the cost, the price that's been paid for you to be forgiven, that will foster a sense of profound gratitude in your life, and you'll live to love and serve the one who's paid your debt. And so where there is little love in my life for God or the things of God, it's, a direct, it's directly related to a lack of understanding of what I've been forgiven of. When I fail to understand the seriousness of my sin and the, the depth of the price that's been paid when God's own son bled and died and gave his own life in my place on the cross... When I understand this, this will fuel a sense of love and gratitude in my life unlike anything else. And this is essential for growth. Because this then becomes the fuel for me to forgive others just in the same way that I've been forgiven. You understand that? Because when you get saved, you come to faith in Jesus, you're going to discover that you're going to have to practice the same type of forgiveness in your relationships with other people, the very same forgiveness that God has demonstrated in forgiving you. Ephesians 4.32, the scripture says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so spiritual maturity in a believer's life recognizes the way in which we've been forgiven, and in that way, it gives me a paradigm or a model to follow to forgive others in my life who wrong me. So how did God in Christ forgive us? Well, consider this. In Jesus Christ, God forgave us by absorbing the consequences of our sin. He absorbed in himself the painful consequences of my sin. Not seeking retaliation, but absorbed 
those consequences himself. Another way in which I've been forgiven in Christ, God forgave me by canceling the debt. He paid the debt. And that means I'm no longer held liable for sins or any way am I made to pay for those sins because Jesus Christ has paid the debt. And so when I forgive someone else in my life as a believer, I'm canceling the debt of the one who sinned against me and I promise to not bring it up to the offender or hold it over their head anymore. That's what forgiveness means in a believer's life. I'm not going to throw back up in their face what they said, what they did, because I'm going to forgive them the way that I've been forgiven in Christ. And then, listen to this, forgiving others as God has forgiven us in Christ, it means that we, uh, we resolve to give up the right to pursue revenge. Retaliation. See, the world gets back, at each, you, know, you, you, you get me, I'm going to get you. In fact, the world says, I'm going to get you before you even get me. Because I'm just going to assume that at some point you're going to try to get me. But a believer in Christ recognizes you've been forgiven much and you forgive much. I'm going to forgive others the way that God has forgiven me in Christ. And so I refuse to seek revenge. And then it also means, listen to this, to forgive others the way that I've been forgiven means that I determine to do good to that person who's offended me rather than evil. Now Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 12 when he says here's a sign of spiritual maturity in a Christian's life. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Never revenge yourselves, beloved, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And then the apostle Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So forgiving others the way that I've been forgiven in Christ, spiritual maturity recognizes it means I don't seek to do harm to this person, but even, even no matter what they've done to me, I'm going to seek their good. I'm going to seek their best, entrance, their best interests. That's what it means to forgive someone else the way you've been forgiven in Christ. And ultimately, you know what forgiveness seeks? It seeks reconciliation. Why is it that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ? It's because he's interested in reconciling a relationship that's been lost. And so if I'm to forgive others in my life the way that I've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, I'm going to seek to reconcile, be reconciled with that person in my life. And not just let this perpetual animosity or enmity continue between me and this other person. And so all of this is really a sign of spiritual growth in your life when you understand the depth of your forgiveness, how you've been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. And in turn, you're expressing that same forgiveness to others in your relationship. And this is a sign that you're well on your way to spiritual maturity. So I need to know my sins are forgiven. That's at least one key thing that I need to know if I'm going to grow in my life. Now, number two. I also need to know that my sonship is certain. 
Every Christian needs to know that their sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, but I need to know that my sonship is certain. I need to know with confidence that I am now adopted into the family of God, and God is my Father. Now look at verse 13, where Paul says, I'm writing to you, or or, uh, John says, I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Skip on down. He says, I write to you children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So notice that involved with this spiritual growth is this, this notion of knowing God in personal relationship. Knowing that you've been brought into the family of God. Knowing that you've been adopted into the family of God. In fact, he's going to say the same thing on into chapter 3 in verse 1 when John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So God has demonstrated his love in my life, in your life as a believer, by bringing us into his family. We've been adopted into the family of God. And that means that now we are the sons and daughters of God. And I know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who perhaps have maybe a bad memory. Maybe it's hard for them to identify with God as their father simply because of what their earthly father did to them. I think of cases of abuse, cases of neglect. There are a lot of people who are living with trauma brought on by the sins of some earthly father. But I want you to know something. In God the Father, we have a perfect provider. In God the Father, we have a perfect Father who cares for us, who loves us, who has our best interest in mind. And he's brought us into his family through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So John here, he's he's referring to fathers within the church. Perhaps he's addressing those who were the more seasoned members of the congregation, those who were the spiritual leaders in the congregation. Maybe he's referring to those who were further along in their faith than others. And yet, in no way did it imply that they had arrived at a point where focus was no longer necessary in their life. By the way, you know that you never get to a place in your spiritual journey where you just need to sort of check out and sort of get on autopilot until you go to heaven? (laughs) I think about the Apostle Paul. Up until the moment that Paul was beheaded, what was the pursuit of his life? Jesus Christ, knowledge of God. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That ought to be my pursuit until the day I die, no matter our age. Dr. Chuck Swindoll says this, in my lifetime of ministry, I've learned that some are so young in age and so new to the faith that they have no idea how dangerous the world can be to their spiritual lives. And yet on the other hand, some are so old and seasoned in the faith that they begin to live as if they've outgrown the power of temptation. That's why the scripture says we need to take heed lest we fall. And so a sign of spiritual progress in your life will be this increasing awareness of your own weakness coupled with an increasing reliance upon Christ's strength. And this fosters a profound sense of humility in your life that makes you a whole lot more patient and understanding toward others, especially as they may not be further along as you are in their walk of faith. 
And so pay attention to what John is saying to the fathers that he's addressing here. He says, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. He says that twice. He says, you children who are new in the faith, you know the Father. And so the more that we know him, the more we grow and the more we mature. Growth comes through knowing God. By the way, think about those mature Christian men and women in your life, maybe who impacted you the most as a young believer. I guarantee you, maybe the Lord's brought somebody to your mind right now who had an impact on you spiritually. Maybe it was the person who led you to faith in Jesus. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a deacon, some Christian worker, someone in the church, some dear lady. You learned how to pray by listening to them pray. You learned how to read and study the Bible by watching them, gleaning insights from them. Maybe you watched them share their faith with passion and consistency, and man, it just had a major impact on you and how you live out your life now. Thank God for those who are spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. Aren't you grateful for those? Every church I've had the privilege to serve The church I grew up in, there were those who were godly men and women, and I'm telling you, it was evident that they knew God through the way they lived their life. I think about just such profound pillars in the churches. And by the way, every believer ought to aspire to know God and pursue maturity in that same sense. I think about those who are coming along, those who are younger in the faith, those who are new to the faith. Those who've impacted us, listen, there's someone else behind who's looking to us to impact them the same way we've been impacted by those who've gone before us. So let's not drop the ball. So what do I need to know as a believer? I need to know my sins are forgiven. I need need to know that I know God. My sonship is certain. I need to know that I'm in the family. And then number three and last, I need to know that my strength is supplied. Every Christian needs to know their sins are forgiven, their sonship, this is certain, but that their strength is supplied. Listen to what John says here uh, when he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Down in verse 14, I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So John is saying that every believer needs to know that they've been supplied with strength and victory for the battle is sure. And so John is referring to young men here. And again, in no way does this rule out that he's speaking to the ladies within the congregation. This is just simply his way of referring to various groups who are in various stages within the churches. But he's addressing young men in verse 13. He does it again in verse 14. The fathers are encouraged on the basis of what they know, but these young men are reminded of their strength. So maybe as he's writing these words, John is thinking back on his own walk with God throughout the years. By this point, he's personally known Jesus for nearly six decades. As a young man, he was full of strength. He was full of vigor. Uh, the, The text even says that he outran Peter on the way to the tomb and he was the first one to discover that it was empty but now he's a father now he's a spiritually mature Christian who's well advanced in years and he's got a lot of experience under his belt 
reminds me of what Proverbs 20, verse 29 says. The glory of young men is their strength. But listen to this. The splendor of old men is their gray hair. The splendor of old men is their gray hair. Western culture and Eastern culture is different in this respect. Because let me tell you something. In Western culture, we have a fetish with all things young and youthful. Are you listening? What do we try to do? We try to conceal the gray hair. Now, don't you sit there and act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Someone says, just be glad you got hair. How about that, you know? Gray, silver, black, it don't matter. Be glad you got it. But see, Eastern culture, there's a profound sense of respect for those who are older. That could be something that maybe has been lost in Western culture with such a with such a focus on autonomy and independence and youthfulness. Thank God for those who are older who have something to say and speak into the lives of those who are younger. That's what John is really getting at here in this this letter. So he mentions three things that are true of these young men. He says that they're strong. That's a statement of fact. Strong is an adjective here that carries this idea of one who's valiant, one who has strength of soul. I'm writing to you young men because you're strong. That's not to say that they're strong in and of themselves. That's not what he means here. No, they've been made strong. It means they've, they've been supplied with spiritual strength that's been given to them by the very one that they've come to know through faith. And that's true for every believer. And we need to know this if we're going to make any spiritual progress in life. I need to know my sin is forgiven. I need to know that I've been brought into the family of God. But I also need to know that I've been strengthened by means of the indwelling life of God. And the spirit of God who's come to live within me as a believer. And that means that I've received new life and power as a child of God. The moment that we believe on Christ, the moment that we're born again, the moment that we're brought into the family, there's a change that takes place. There's a difference that takes place. There's something that's come into us. There's something that has happened to us. There's a new infusion of life, and we're aware of a power that we can draw upon that we never had before. And this is Christ in me, the hope of glory. And this is true of every believer. God has not left you to your circumstances as a believer. You tend to think about all of the weakness and all of the junk that we've got to process through and work through living in a fallen world. No, God has given you an advocate. He's given you a comforter who's come to live within you and is the Holy Spirit. And he's come to empower you and to make you strong as you face battles in life. And notice what else John says of these, these young men. You're strong. He says in verse 14, the word of God abides in you. And right there's the source of their strength, isn't it? There's the secret. It's the word of God in them, abiding in them. The psalmist said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, you know the verse well. The apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
He's not talking about getting up to home plate and hitting a home run. He's not talking about dealing with a nagging co-worker. You know what he's talking about? You look at the context of Philippians 4, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about being locked up in prison, being without, being destitute in this world. Paul's referring to that. He says, I've learned no matter what circumstance I'm in, I've learned to be content. And he said, here's the secret of my contentment. I can do all things through Christ who supplies me with his strength. The Christ who's come to live in me. The Christ who has supplied me with his own eternal life. The third thing he mentions is that they've overcome the evil one. He says, you young men, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. Which means that they were entrenched in a battle. And John well understood the fact that the Christian life, it's not a playground, it's a battleground. And all of us as believers, we have an enemy who actively seeks our demise. But let me tell you something, he's a defeated enemy. And John is using language here, it's a statement of fact, you have overcome. How is it that we've overcome? We've overcome through Christ. Because Christ has overcome the enemy through his own death and resurrection and ascension. Which means that Satan has no authority whatsoever over my life unless I yield that authority to him. So think about this, folks. This is true of you as a believer. What John says in this paragraph. In Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And isn't that just a wonderful thing to dwell upon and meditate upon? My sins have been forgiven. The debt's been paid. But I've been brought into the family of God, number two. God is my father. God is my heavenly father, and he's a good, good father. And the third thing that's true of you is that you have been supplied with strength through Jesus Christ who has come in the person of the Holy Spirit to live within you. If I may be so bold to say something, listen, please understand what I'm about to say. We've, we've, we've come to refer to the Christian life only in terms of us giving our life to Christ. He ain't interested in you giving your life to him. He wants to give his life to you. You understand? That's, that's biblical Christianity. Christ giving me his life. That's not to say I've not surrendered to him because that's That's what you do when you come to faith in Jesus. You surrender to Jesus. You place your faith, your trust, all of your reliance, all of your confidence in him. You believe that he died for you, that he rose again. But you know something? That initial surrender, the moment you came to faith, is then followed up by a thousand daily surrenders as you live out your faith, isn't it? The Christian life is one of surrender. And if I'm to make any spiritual headway whatsoever in my life, it means that I surrender my pride every day. I've got to surrender my ego every day. I've got to surrender this sense of self-reliance, which is so easy and comes so natural to me. I've got to do it every day. And I've got to draw upon the power that's been given to me, the life of God within me as a believer. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Three things that are true of every Christian. Your sin is forgiven.
You've been brought into the family of God. And you've been supplied with an endless, bottomless ocean of strength that's yours in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. And faith means that I draw upon this power as I live out my life every day practically. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen to me. This is true of believers. And only of believers. Which means if you've never by faith come to Jesus Christ, what's keeping you back? What's keeping you from throwing up the white flag and surrendering to Christ today, believing that he died for you and that he rose again? Confess him as your Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Be born again and be made new. Believe the gospel. And these three wonderful truths will also be true of you. Your sins are forgiven. God is your Father. And you're supplied with strength. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. How we need it. Lord, when we think about the battle of life and even the different stages of life, when we're young and we feel like we've got it all figured out and the world is our oyster. <laughs> and we experience failure and heartbreak. Lord, in the heat of the battle, in the flower of life, we need to know that God is our Father and our sins are forgiven and that in Jesus Christ, we've overcome the evil one. And Lord, when we're older, when there are more silver hairs than brown or dark hairs, it's a reminder to us every day that we're one day closer to seeing you face to face. And what is our confidence in the face of death but this truth that John has reminded us of, that we know God. And like the Apostle Paul, we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is not lost for the child of God. It's that which by, it just simply ushers us into our heavenly reward. And oh, what confidence we can live with as believers through every season of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.